Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, today we are talking to Dr. Frank Harold from the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, he's here with us to discuss a 2020 article uh, that's titled, There is New Wording, but there's no real change in what we deliver, uh, implementing the new national curriculum for physical education in England. Uh, the paper was published in the European Physical Education Review. And uh, Frank, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Risto. Thanks for having me. Great, great podcast. Uh, some really great colleagues on here. So it's very good to be asked to contribute to this. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. And when I saw this paper come up, uh, I was really interested to read it. And it's it aligns a lot with what's going on in, in different parts of the world right now. So uh, we've been collecting these curriculum podcasts. And I know this is going to be a little bit different than the other curriculum podcasts, but it was the first time that it was really looked at in the national curriculum in England. So let's uh, let's start off with this. Can you just give us a little bit about uh, what led you to research the effects of the national curriculum for physical education in England and kind of what's the background leading up to this uh, research that you took on? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. So um, really to go even a little bit further back, I've actually always been interested in uh, curriculum, really going back for many years, I suppose. Uh, as a secondary uh, school teacher of PE, I was originally, I'm from Germany, but I've been teaching in England since 1989. And when I came over from there, it was sort of quite a shock to me to experience that culture shock to teach the uh, English uh, national curriculum then at the time, which at the time, to some extent, even like now was very much a multi-activity curriculum <clears throat> and quite dominated really by traditional English sports as well and sort of really quite quite sports uh, oriented at the time with activities like rugby, like cricket uh, for boys, like netball for girls, which I'd never uh, personally experienced with my German background. Mm -hmm. But that was really important for the PE staff there. And, and it was really interesting to see how that was delivered. And at the time, uh, going back to 1989, when I came first over here, the very first national curriculum actually arrived only in 1991. So that's really not a very long time ago. Mm -hmm. And it came in a ring binder. Uh, most of the days before podcasts and the internet. And then we had to look at it. And we had to make sense of it. And if we look at sort of recontextualization and some of the work of Bernstein that looks how national curricula in the end get implemented and at the slippage and the interpretation that was a really interesting exercise but then sort of forwarding uh, fast forwarding through after all the teaching working as a physical education teacher educator uh, again it was always interesting to see the the different changes through the different national curricula and and the development of those so when the final one or the, this last one that is the the uh, essence of this paper came out. I was really quite intrigued uh, with that one because it just started to look so different from all the other, from most other modern national curricula that we've recently seen being developed, which are very holistic, frequently sort of emphasize holistic approaches and salutogenic approaches with a focus on health and, and well-being. Uh, such as Australia, such as New Zealand, uh, but closer to home as well now, Scotland and Wales. 
and ours really does look quite different. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought I'd give this some time uh, to settle in and to bed in, and then we'll have a look and, and see what changes it will have actually uh, triggered, if if any. Yeah. So that's the back. And, and it's interesting because one. we've talked about the Welsh, we've talked about Australian and New Zealand, and a lot of those, you know, the people who studied that have come from England. And so they've given me kind of this background of, well, the new national curriculum in England, and it always starts with that. And so it's it's minimalist. You you talk about that in the in the paper. So can you kind of skim through the structure of the PE curriculum in England? Tell us about this latest reform. Uh, and is it true that it can only it can fit in like two A four papers? It can fit into your pocket, Risto. Your wow. top pocket. You fold it a couple of times. If you still deal in paper money, then it will absolutely do that. Yeah, that is one of the really interesting things, but only one of them. And and as you say, uh, I suppose I start a little bit uh, further further back just to give a bit of context. Uh, as you said, one of the key uh, curriculum researchers, I suppose, would be Dawn Penny. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously over in Australia, but coming from here, from England, and not, not too far from wh where I am. And uh, she really does remind us, or Dawn's work always reminds us that we have to see curricula in a political context and in the wider context in which they happen. And I think that's really important to understand the current uh, English National Curriculum for PE. It was, she always reminds us it's it's political and it's also people who make policies as well. So this one came in uh, following, and but roundabout and inspired by the Olympics in London initially. So some thoughts came from there. It was a significant government change from Labour to a conservative liberal uh, coalition preceding this, but very much really led by the conservatives with a quite new neoliberal outlook uh, on education as well. And the prime minister then at the time was David Cameron, and he had a very special education secretary going by the name of of Michael Gove, who was a, a quite headstrong character and, and still is. And the the discourse really at the time, the neoliberal discourse, uh, really went away from mollycoddling, or so the Conservatives said, mollycoddling uh, labour policies, and which is, I think, somewhere where the competitive competition messages of that particular curriculum uh, originated. And if I may, I would like to read you a quote from David Cameron from 2012, which will give you and will give the listeners, I think, a good idea. That's what, perfect, because what, I, I wrote this down. I said, I hope you can read this quote, because when I read that quote, I was very, very surprised. And obviously, like, I wasn't following UK politics at that time. And to hear it now and doing all of these curriculum podcasts, it really rings like a very surprising statement. Let's just say that. It, does stand, it, it does stand out. Uh, when, when all the other ones are about health and well-being and holistic development of the individual and student-centered <clears throat> physical activity and so forth. So I read you here that, that quote, first of all, from the then Prime Minister, David Cameron. The problem 
has been too many schools not wanting to have competitive sport. Some teachers not wanting to join in and play their part. So if we want to have a great sporting legacy for our children, and I do, we have got to have an answer that brings the whole of society together to crack this. More competition, more competitiveness, more getting rid of the idea of, I always have to laugh at this one, all must win prizes and you can't have a competitive sports day. We need a big cultural change, a cultural change in favour of competitive sport. That's what I think really matters. Quite, and, quite a thing. Yeah, and he was part of pushing this kind of national curriculum, and you see that, and there's so much about competition, and it makes sense now that you talked about the Olympics being around there and pushing this competitive sport, but even in some of the first sentences that it talks about is this curriculum should, you know, allow all pupils to succeed and excel at competitive sport. You're reading the purpose of study here, which yeah. is the other thing, which I, I would like to just outline to the listeners, because I think with the context, with the political context, it becomes really clear how that's being reflected in the purpose of study. And purpose of study, the whole curriculum is really short, but this is really, and everything everything should start really and finish with the purpose of the study and the principal aims, so that, that's really quite important. So here they go. <clears throat> A high-quality physical education curriculum inspires all pupils to succeed and excel in competitive sports and other physically demanding activities, not just physical activities, physically demanding activities. <clears throat> it should provide opportunities for pupils to become physically confident in a way that supports their health and fitness. Okay, so we're probably reasonably happy with that, but that's also physically competent and confident, not really the wider view of, of health and well-being. And then it finishes with our next sentence. We are back to competition opportunities to compete in sport and other activities to build character and help to embed such values as fairness and respect. Yeah. There's a lot of competition in mm -hmm. there, a lot of sport in there. And if language is important and if language means something and gives us cues as to what the meaning is, then I think this one is really pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Success and excelling in competitive sport for everybody. And I think that there, and you talk about this later on in some of the quotes, is that there are teachers that don't believe that. And there are a lot of teachers that don't think that the purpose of PE should to have all of my pupils be able to excel in, in competitive sport. There's a lot of different ways to be active. And, and you... You have these other places there as well that you uh, you show the assessment piece and how much they uh, put into assessment. And it's one or two sentences that describes the entire assessment procedure. And and I get I get the idea behind it in the sense that they're trying to, um, you know, risk like 
not restrict teachers in doing one size fits all, but I think this minimalist style curriculum, I don't know, you can maybe talk more about this, but did it leave too much space? I think, yeah, we, we, I think we come to that maybe like a, a little bit yeah. later on. You're absolutely already, I think, with your observations there, um, you pretty much hit the mark because one part, if curriculum really should be, and as David Kirk tells us, it should be a structured outline of, of the learning intentions that teacher teachers could then have a provided, been provided with a structure that will actually allow them to meaningfully plan for their learning, then when you go really, really minimalistic, an advantage is you provide that freedom, but the disadvantage is, is then, of course, you start falling short uh, in guidance. So yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So let's let's get to what about the teachers, mm-hmm. right? So can you give us a little bit of an understanding of how complex the process of curriculum change and innovation can be? And maybe talk a little bit more about the challenges that teachers face to implementing changes in the curriculum, like what happened in, uh, in the UK. Yeah, sure. We'll do. Yeah. The, uh, so this, this, uh, paper obviously was based on interviews on semi-structured interviews with, uh, secondary physical educational uh, physical education school teachers. And the questions that we explored with them were around, uh, their philosophies of teaching PE in the first instance to get a little bit of a background of where they were actually coming from, uh, what they felt the principal role of the curriculum was in the first instance, and then their perceptions of previous uh, national curriculum in physical education, and then the knowledge and perceptions of the new ones to get some idea as to what sort of their starting position framework was for them actually implementing the actions or not implementing in in part uh, sort of actions and guidance of that uh, PE curriculum. And then we sort of started looking and and, and analyzing the data uh, of those interviews, sort of using a little bit constructivist grounded theory and and, and, uh, constant comparative analysis for, for that one. And sort of after <laughs> after going sort of through some of the the initial interviews, some of the themes were already sort of um, emerging pretty sort of pretty quickly, and uh, I started to think that maybe I should have renamed that paper differently, maybe back to the future in uh, in the way as a, a previous paper. I think the last author really looked at curriculum change and implementation. Mm-hmm. England was Matthew Kurtner Smith. I don't know if you've yeah. ever come across his work. So he had a, a around about two thousand uh, research, then which he termed the more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah, and sort of to to some extent um, that there were some remnants of that, and I think what we explored and what I found sort of in the data of of the teachers in in their narratives that the the legitimized practices, the established legitimized practices um, are quite strong and have a a great durability. And if you're faced with a new national curriculum that really lacks sort of in detail, then, and 
also, if we look at Bernstein's work, so if we look at new knowledge leading to new curricula, and then the, those written official documents going through recontextualization, very often there's a secondary recontextualization phase there. There, are, uh, here in England, this used to be a, a, a quango called the Curriculum and Qualifications Authority, but all of this has gone under the Conservatives. The inspection framework uh, called uh, Ofsted is an inspection framework that comes in and inspects schools, but does not really get involved in guidance and in the process. So the, the olden days inspector who might have maybe worked with those teachers to help them with ideas how to do this and who, who, how to implement this uh, is effectively not there anymore. So here at the moment, and with PE being PE, and we only ever come in for the ride, those new curricula are being brought in for other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, that's for PISA, for international success statistics and so forth. So the curriculum really dropped in literally onto the tables of the physical education teachers. And that's a challenge. So if we talk about challenges, that's a challenge. And then obviously it was it provided that freedom, but it didn't provide a lot of guidance and, and not a lot of support through maybe exemplification materials through that secondary recontextualization uh, process, etc. Yeah. So it's really problematic for the teachers and really hard to fathom out in the end what exactly they were really supposed to be doing as a consequence of the document, which really would have had to meet with very highly motivated teams in place already that would have been that would have wanted to go for change because they were not satisfied with their existing practice. Yeah. But that case. So we had that this new document coming in, uh, not that much guidance, no real need to effect change as right. a consequence of that. And and teachers who in essence were quite satisfied with the practice that they had developed themselves over time. So those sort of, if it then falls into those settled communities of practice that have got established um, legitimized practices already, the incentive for change all of a sudden starts to diminish. Right. So yeah. that's, yeah. And I remember yeah. reading that uh, Matt Kurtner-Smith article, and he was looking at curriculum change very similar to you, but a more robust curriculum. And so it's interesting to kind of look at these back to back. And I would implore anybody who is, you know, reading these articles to look at that and look at this. And because there, there is a lot of overlap in the sense of and, you know, a lot of what your what your title even gives away here, you know, uh, is that there's not much that has changed. And one of the things that I loved in this was you talk about the freedom to not change by the teachers and you know I was reading through the representative quotes from the teachers and you know you have some insights here about even teachers who didn't reject the freedom provided by the new curriculum reform and this didn't lead to actual change in their practice instead it was actually reinforcing the status quo in their approaches to teaching and it was awesome you you put down your like seven different quotes that basically said fairly similar all different people that were saying yeah, we didn't really change much. And they kind of felt bad about not changing, but they were not given the guidance to really change. 
And they said, the sports rules hasn't, haven't changed, so why would I change what I'm doing? So were there mm-hmm. other factors that you found that favored this limited pedagogical change in the teacher's practice? Well, I, if I come to, I think you, you hit a really good point there. If I can come back to these sort of, that was almost like a little bit of a narrative ploy, really, to demonstrate that those seven um, little quotes that mm-hmm. really stood for, stood for that uh, lack of change or, or teachers' use or not feeling that they had to change. And uh, the the uh, the reviewers questioned that initially as well, so that was interesting, but I sort of stuck by my guns and said, mm-hmm. no, no, I want that in because it gives, it really does give um, sort of a good flavor of, of what, what's actually going on here. Um, yeah, I think other factors, I think, in particular, if we look at how how does practice actually get transformed and developed in communities of practice, I think there was not that much going on there. I think there was a lot of busy lives are going on. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, we, we look at this and we don't really have to do too much different Um there was not so much. There was not again another uh, area of recontextualization. It could have been driven through uh, change demand through senior management. That didn't seem to be the case. In many instances, it was sort of yeah, we get on with doing our English and our math and our science here at the school because that's what we really get uh, evaluated on. And UPE people, you are doing a good job anyway. Yeah. So. You know, you, here it is. You you do with that what you think you should be doing, and there was there didn't seem to be significant staff time spent on it or curriculum time development time spent on it, not on the physical education side. And again, I think if we do want change, it's absolutely important that we have teacher agency, that we have teacher buy-in, and and that there are sort of processes that really. Uh, will will support that and really promote that, and that didn't seem to be that didn't seem to be uh, the case. The one area, and you've mentioned that already, that was stinging teachers a little bit, was uh, that they had the assessment, the attainment target taken yeah. away. So literally, in in this particular PE curriculum. There's literally just one statement there that basically says you know, assessment is that the students are capable of understanding and 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 uh, practicing competently the the content that's outlined, mm-hmm. basically on this one page. And previously, teachers had spent a lot of work on developing their assessment practices. Actually, going back to that Matthew Kurtner Smith curriculum from 1999, and then all the way through where uh, different learning processes had been outlined and an, an eight-level attainment target was provided that had been constant all the way through. And teachers had put a lot of work into that, trying to put that into pupil speak. This is what you need to be able to do if you're at that level and they'd used it. And it really, it was really firm practice. And all of a sudden, it was all taken away. It was, it was taken away for really good reasons, uh, I think the the actual commission that was in charge of assessment without levels, uh, led by uh, Professor Tim Oates, I think at the time, uh, very well seasoned professionals with a very good rationale. They really 
felt that the levels have been abused and just used too much by teachers by leveling students rather than doing meaningful assessment for learning and focusing on learning. So the intentions there were really good, but in the in the physical education side of things, it was not backed up. Yeah. And it, you you also yeah, you yeah. also had the um, when you talked about assessment, you had some of the teachers talk about how they would assess the way that they assessed at the GCSE, which is the examination PE, and they were doing it at the lower levels in the same way. Talk about that because you, you said in yeah. the paper that that was a problematic way of yeah, doing well, things. Yeah, it, it, it really is. I felt, I found two big sort of issues with that or, or problems with that. Number one was the sort of the rebadging of previous practices that they had. So they weren't supposed to be doing level four, level five, level six anymore. So all of a sudden it was bronze, silver and gold. Hmm. And sort of, you know, assessment practices were sort of living on through a, a rebadging. And the other one uh, was sort of this borrowing back again and also the, the high accountability systems that are in place in English schools because the inspection framework can be very consequential and examination success can be very consequential. So what teachers in many subjects are doing is they are using the examination subject uh, grading approaches and grading criteria and also materials to some extent and then are taking what is sometimes called the flight path to GCSE, flight, mm -hmm. nice word, isn't it? <laughs> Use the flight path to, to GCSE, and then they they work their way backwards from there. But of course, examination GCSE, which is the examination subject there, that was never meant to be. That was meant to be for students who are interested in physical education and sport, those who are buying into the subject, who do it as an elective and it was never meant to be for everybody out there for all the people of all the different abilities and all the different issues and and problems that they might have to have with the subject and the, the need to be inspired and the need to feel um, autonomy and, and competence and relatedness that it was never meant to never meant to do that and therefore uh, I felt it was a quite regressive approach really to, to trying to work out sort of a bolt-on approach really to uh, to assessment practices that were maybe not located within the actual curriculum as it should be. Right. Um, and, and yeah, problematic really from, yeah. from that point of view and not, not that well reflected. Yeah. So what about, so we talked about assessment. What about the competition side? How did that come out in, in the results? Were, were teachers enthusiastic about it did they shun it did they just kind of ignore the curriculum and just continue doing what they've been doing or well that's that is a really interesting one i found that one really interesting and and it, it, in many ways i think it that the, the findings from this research actually uh unearthed this as well i think in in many ways the competition side the official and political discourse about competition in English schools is a red herring anyway. There always has been competition, always has been an integral part of the 
tradition, yeah, school curriculum, both in state schools and even more so, of course, in private schools, which is incidentally the background of those politicians uh, at the time. So Eton, Oxford educated, uh, the prime minister these days as well, Boris Johnson, where obviously school and sport and competition is really important. But it also, it has always lived on and always has had a, a su sufficient curriculum space and emphasis in English state schools and English physical education uh, as well. And that really has not that significantly altered over all these years. Um, and it, it's sort of a, it tends to come more from sort of the, conservative side of the spectrum where there is this suspicion that the lefties are mollycoddling pupils and it's not that hard and we want that character building and and that that's actually not done it's maybe not 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 done as explicitly as people might think but there, there is the competitive element in in english school physical education i think is well alive and is also quite balanced within the curriculum I think, and very often also the teacher considerations on that, I, I found very, very balanced um, and really coming to the conclusion that they were doing enough of that and they didn't want to do any more because they felt that, you know, it, it, it obviously doesn't work for all the pupils and it's part of the mix, but sport is not PE, sport is part of PE and competition is part of PE. Uh, but but it's not exactly the same. So really, that um, sort of political assertion and hoo-ha that this curriculum would would change anything to that or to society or or to young people within that, I've, in the end, I found really unfounded. And again, I don't think there was a real significant change yeah. uh, through that agenda. Interesting. Yeah, and you bring this up in the in the introduction of the, about why curriculum change even happens about it being politically charged it's about PISA scores and you know being ranked in some ranking below another country that you're competitive with and then you go through this whole curriculum change and you throw in you know all this money into changing and it's interesting you know when you go down and actually do the research is did it really change or was it just another policy that was put in without supporting the teachers and and we've had, um, you know, Dylan Scanlon on, we've had Laura Alfrey on, Justin O'Connor, who've talked about teacher agency and how big that part is in actually delivering this curriculum. It's, and it seems like in this case, it was the higher ups that put down the piece of paper or two and then said, hey, here's this. You just need to do this without the support. So going into that overall... I, I, I yeah. Just to come back in there, I think you've summarized that much better than <laughs> than I, I would have done. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the key to any of this making a difference is that is to get that teacher agency going, really, isn't it? So it doesn't want to be top down, but you do want to have teacher buy in. Mm -hmm. And you do need to support and empower teachers and inspire them as well. Um, to come up with these with these new new practices, and to some extent, that's why I said to you, uh, you know, it, in some ways, I would have almost liked to call that back to the future and have a thought about it. Then I probably would have done, yeah. because there was really nothing there is in this curriculum text 
there really is nothing new. Mm -hmm. There is nothing really innovative. It's sort of going back to to previous val values in in that sense. There is there is there are no inclusivity messages in there other than using the the word all should inspire all pupils and and how can all pupils really inspire to for for competition anyway? But I'm not saying that the that there aren't any inclusivity um, messages in the overall English national curriculum. There are in the broader curriculum guidance, especially at the beginning of the curriculum. But as far as this document is concerned, uh, th there was nothing there that would have made teachers sit up, listen up, um, and feel that they would have been part of something and that they would have wanted to be to be ready to go and change the world. And if anything, They've got maybe more inspiration from, you know, the connectivity to social media and sharing good practices with other colleagues out there. If anything, there were sort of some inferences there by, by teacher narratives that they were some of the things that they were really listening to and that they were really trying out. So, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on there. Yeah, It really needs to be done if we want to have change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think we've covered in a in a roundabout way a lot of the questions that I had for you. Um, so I'll give you some uh, last comments, but I really do want to appreciate uh, or thank you for your time. Um, I loved reading the teacher quotes. I think you raised a lot of important points about the curriculum reform, and I think you know the way that you even situated this paper in the very beginning of saying you know there are these other and you cook quote, modern curricula out there, New Zealand, Australia, Scotland, Wales, that are doing different things. And this was very different than what the, you know, the other curriculum are. And, you know, I'm teaching in a country that doesn't have a national curriculum. We just have recommendations and suggestions. And we hope that those recommendations and suggestions are taken into effect. So I think that it's always interesting to talk to a different perspective about what was the intent how did it actually, you know, work out? And then how do we make this better in, in the future? So um, any last comments, anything that you feel like we missed in, in the questions? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Risto, and sort of, you know, for all your, for all your really good observations there and for providing the platform to, to actually reach a wider audience, which is always important. Yeah. And I think that's sort of one of the, the points for me here is the whole communication process and how it actually works. How much do you have to have? What's the balance between brevity and clarity in the curriculum and between being overburdened and putting teachers into a straitjacket? And I think to me, the, the, the salient points here are to really find that balance and have that very clearly developed and expressed curriculum that does, however, also have teacher agency and buy-in and not just a top-down uh, sort of implementation process, coupled with support and coupled with innovative ideas that inspire people that would be, to me, the essence of a new curriculum that would actually benefit students. Yeah, absolutely. And I and think you, you talked about finding that balance. And I think maybe we found one side of it in brevity. And there's another side somewhere else that has a little bit a little longer. And, and it is, 
You know, it's it's not like people go out to try to ruin education. They go out to try to do what they think is right, that they think is going to work. And it's up to people like you to go out and research and figure out what is actually working and what is not. So um, thank you so much. And, and I would hope that I've not been unfair towards, you know, some, some of these positive curriculum intentions of mm -hmm. of freeing up teachers as well. So if... if <laughs> If I did do that, then then I would like to clarify that um, retrospectively. So, but I think you've you've summed that one really, yeah, really well up. Yeah, and we'll link to the full article. You can check out the full citation in the comments section. Um, that's all we got on this one. And uh, thanks to Alba Rodriguez for her help in preparing this podcast. And uh, enjoy the read if you're able to do it. Thanks, thanks, Frank. Okay, thank you very much, Risto, for having us having us on. Yep. Bye. Keep up the good work.